This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for listening in. This is part two of a conversation that we had with Alan Edmonds. If you haven't already, scroll back in your feed and listen to episode seven first. In the second part of the discussion, Alan talks with us about his approach to identifying broad investment themes, doing research on specific companies or products, and a 10-bagger pick. We kick off the conversation on how to value speculative stocks, and we hope you find the discussion informative and interesting. Just want to go back to Afterpay APT, and, and you talked something really before about the market, the ASX, not being able to value something. Afterpay is a classic example. The whole sector, the buy now, pay later, split it, sizzle, you name it, they've all gone ballistic. How did you know? What what was sort of inherent? Do you want to talk the, the listeners through that? I think, look, I'll tell you, what I, what I was proud of myself with Afterpay is that I would never use Afterpay. That's just something I would never use. So when I first saw it, I thought, why the hell would anybody use this? And then I, you know, I just talked to some friends and, and they have, you know, younger sons and daughters that were actually started using them. I thought, well, that's a bit strange. You know, that's what really got me into it because I thought the way, I, the way we work is I, I would get in trouble if we, we paid any interest on a credit card at home. So we pay it off every month. So I couldn't understand why people would do that. And then I started seeing things like I, I, what I like to do with a company is if I like the idea I try to go and talk to their clients. So what I what I did is I walked into one com- one shop. I, I was at Moringa Mall in Sydney, if anybody knows about it. And I saw a little afterpay sign in the thing. And I walked in. And I think it was about – I just bought it $2. I think this was around 3 or $4. It must be one of the first um, actual shops that had afterpay in the thing. And I walked in and I said, does anybody actually use this? And then uh, they said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. You know, the girls come in and they were talking about it. And, they, and then I thought, oh, all right. All these teenage girls were coming in and saying their mother was using it. And, and then they just, she just kept telling me more and more information about it. I thought, this is a whole world that I don't know about. And when I, when I find things that I don't know about, I start to get excited because I think if I don't know about it, then I read everything that comes off the ASX, maybe ASX doesn't know about it. doesn't really understand it. And that's when I started to do more and more research and I'd ring up I ring up companies and say, look, I'm having problems with my afterpay account. Uh, do other people use it much? And then, they'll t- then they started telling me, oh, yeah, yeah, we have lots of people. We have lots of we don't have any problems. You're not the only person having any problems. I go, well, that's good. They're not having any problems. But tell me, <laughs> that's the tell me more about it. Yeah. Tell me more that you, know, you do use it. So I, that's just what I like. I like, to, I like to talk to the actual client. The clients will be, be really good and clients will tell you. Like, uh, I tell people I don't talk to management because – I don't trust them. They're probably all wonderful individuals, but for me, I don't want to get fall into their story. I don't want to. They, I say they, um, they, they actually have to be great salesmen because when they start an idea, they get people to give them millions of dollars just on an idea. So they're obviously great salesmen. They can sell what they sell the idea. 
I don't want to fall under their spell. So I rarely talk to management. I will occasionally, if they have questions, I'll ring them up and say, what are you guys doing? I don't understand why you're doing that. Um, some of the times they don't even bother replying to me, which I, I think they, sh- they should take the time to reply to me because you're only a small company. That sort of might maybe think, okay, well, if they're not bothered with an investor, then maybe I shouldn't be bothered. Um, but mostly I just deal with the clients. If I can find what clients they're doing, I'll walk into their shop or I'll just talk to or ring them up and make an excuse to talk to them. Just on that note, do you attend AGMs and things for the companies as well once you're invested out or before? Uh, I love going to AGMs and I tell everybody they should go to AGMs. I, it's amazing how many AGMs I go to and like five or six people there. And I'm the only person, you know, like I'm the only one asking questions because that's the only chance you get to front up to the management. So I would encourage anybody that has a, has a, that holds shares in a company, turn up and make them explain why they did what they did. I'll tell you the classic example. I went to um, Get Swift AGM. This was what this was. They went into the trading halt, and I went to the AGM. And then the day after, they said, "Don't worry, we're going to make a great announcement." And they announced that they'd signed up Amazon and Yum Brands, and then the price went stupid. But I was sitting in the uh, in the AGM, and I'd asked them some questions about MB Williams. I said, "I don't. You've got a billion transactions. I can't see how you get a billion transactions." But anyway, that was fine. They gave me an answer. I thought, oh, that's not too bad. And because they said it's not coming from them, it's coming from the, the company. I thought, okay. And then uh, the CEO, the chairman at the time, he said, we're going to make, wait, just wait, guys, wait for tomorrow. We're going to make you all rich. And I thought, that scares the hell out of me. That seriously scares the hell out of me. As soon as it came back online, they had the two Amazon things. I sold 99% of what I had because that just really scared me. I don't want. I want to. I want to. I want someone saying to me, you know, we're on the job, we're doing the job. I don't want anybody doing that. So it sounds there like you were, the talking to management was something that you you did do obviously what you know roundabout way and um to perhaps their detriment to some extent that you're not really looking to be have honey poured in your ears but actually to understand really what their motives yeah, are, that's right. priorities well, are. Well, as I said, I'm just really surprised. Yeah, the small pe- small investors don't go along because. Well, look, you can go along and have some free food if nothing else. But you might as well. Um, that's why I tried Casa again. But you, people ask me questions. What do you think about companies? Look, AGM's coming up. Go to the AGM. They have it for a reason. And what sort of things do you suggest that people do arm themselves and ask when they when they do attend? Or how can they get the most out of visiting? Oh, what should people ask? I want to ask them the direction. What, where, what, you know, for me, as I said, I try to project all the time on what I think they should be getting, how much they how much they're spending on admin, how much they're spending on you know, um, salaries and stuff like that. If you've got questions, and you see that a lot on different forums, people ask, but they never actually go to the management. You can email the management, even if you don't turn up to the AGM. I'm not constantly emailing, but I'll send emails a couple, maybe once a fortnight or something to something to some company just to clarify something. Like what I normally do is if I go to an AGM, um, I will ask them, you know, I was expecting this, how come this didn't happen? Well, I'll make a statement like the end of the says there's a billion. How do you, I just can't rationalise that. Statement. This seems too big to me. How, how do you come at that? You know, you just ask them, if it's something you don't understand, that's that's the whole reason. Look, it's, it's a simple company, I understand I don't need to go to the AGM. But these small caps, it's a growing business. So you need to say, what's your opportunity? What what are you guys doing? How you, what's your, What is your market? You know, what if you don't do, what if that fails, what will you do? What's your next step? What do you expect? You know, what do you expect from the, the, 
the market, who are your competition? The good thing is about is after the AGM, they'll they hang around and you can just talk to them one on one. You can ask them stupid questions and they don't care. So you don't have to ask in front of everybody else if you feel embarrassed to ask a question. So you can just talk to them one on one. And they're really good. Most most of the management is really good. Alan, have you found that yourself winding out of a position because they've been not really keen to talk to you? Uh, you mentioned not returning phone calls. Is that is that sort of um, look? I can give you one example. I give you one perfect example, and this is where I was completely wrong. I went to the AGM uh, of of a certain company, and they put up a slide, and I argued with the CEO. I said that is what you're putting up there is incorrect. The numbers do, do not match what's happening, and he wouldn't. I could see the actual numbers were wrong on the screen, and he was so arrogant he wouldn't admit it. So I went and I sold straight away. I said, "Buggy, you, I'm selling. I'm out of it, right? Because you, you're just too arrogant to run a business." Well, that price was fifty cents at the time. It's now three dollars fifty. So that was like over a twelve-month period. So there you go. He can be right and he can be wrong, but you have to make your, you know, you have to take conviction. My conviction was ruined when he wouldn't even admit that there was something a simple wrong with the with the presentation that he was giving. Not that it was a big issue, right? But I just I was just clarifying, and then he he got really offended by that that I actually questioned anything. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't think I want to be. Pa- I don't want to be part of this company anymore. Turned out to be the wrong thing, but I have to make my call. Sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I don't. Just to go on a bit more to the background research, you mentioned talking to clients and customers of the companies that you're investing in. Do you? How do you sort of come to find those clients? Afterpay is perhaps a bit easier as a retail orientated service, but how do you have any other um, ways you've gone about doing your client research on companies? Well, if you first first thing you do is you. Uh, you can look at all their announcements. I'll probably put out who their actual clients are. Or what I actually and what you can do, they do have an investor relations for a for a reason. I don't think the rest of the, most investor relations do anything, but you can email them and ask them, oh, who you know, who your biggest clients? Can you tell me that sort of because it's non-sensitive information, and they'll give you that information. Then you, it's up to you. You follow up. I'll like I'll I'll make up a story like I did with Afterpay. Okay, I was going to ask you what, what, what your approach is there when you do contact clients. How <laughs> you yeah, look, no, I do. If I, if I know where the shop is and if it's in Sydney and I can go to it, I often go to the shop because what what I do is I I, I walk in and I say, look, you know, I'll probably pretend I'm going into the shop for some reason. And I say, oh, do you guys use oh, some software? They go, oh, yeah, I do use this. And I say, oh, yeah, okay, I've got a friend that uses that. What do you think about it? And then they go, oh, so I say, oh, well, I'm doing a bit of research on it. I'm going to talk to somebody else about the software. What, you know, do you want me to keep you in the loop so you can find out about better things? And so as soon as I sort of build up a little network within within the suppliers so that I can actually add some value to them as well. So if I talk to another supplier or another customer and the customer has issues and I go back and I say, look, man, he's having issues with this and you're having the same issues and, he'll talk, and they'll talk to you. So I try to add a bit of value to them. I'm not just taking from them all the time. I try to help them at the same time. So, and I, I try to help the company. I say, look, if, if I find issues, but I still like the company, I'll, I'll ring up investor relations or I'll ring up the CFO, CEO if, they'll, if they, if some of the smaller companies will take your call. And I say, these guys are having these issues. Is that a problem? And if they start going, uh, yes, then that's the thing you can say, well, maybe... I need to be a little bit careful here. Or if they take it on board, they go, really, is that what's happening? We'll, we'll sort it out straight away. That's what I want to hear. You know, I want to hear that they're keen to, to address any issues that I find. 
So, yes, so I do talk to management, but I don't try not to talk to them on their grounds. I don't want to hear them telling me the story. I don't go for, to hear the story because I've already bought the story. I'm, I want to hear more in depth. It sounds like yeah, that you're there sort of trying to validate the story the from ground. your own your own sources. Yeah, that's than right. Yeah, that's what them. I do. Yeah, that's really interesting. What's it looks like by the sounds of your model that you're looking at sort of tech stocks mostly uh, and and companies that are going to either be cash flow positive or soon to be cash flow positive and are de- getting any revenue. Yep. Uh, have you ever had any investments that are outside of that space and and does opportunity cost in a time period come into sort of a model of yours? That's a good question. It does. I'm, I'm constantly thinking about opportunity cost. And um, I, I used to, I used to invest outside of the tech thing, but basically at the moment the market is, is tech, and so that's what I'm investing in. I follow whatever the market tells me to do. If the market was all pot stocks. And there are some pot stocks that are actually making money and cash flow positive. Then I'd be interested in those pot stocks. I've been in in pot stocks, and and back to moment I'm not actually in because the market has sort of kicked me out of kicked me out of them. So I'm not I'm not adverse. I will move into any other sectors. It's just typically that tech stocks are they're not as capital intensive, and they're quickly you know so many. Well, that's just the big thing. It seems like everything is all the small caps are, are in, into that somehow. So that's why I deal basically with that. Yeah, so to, on that note then, I suppose, um, how do you identify what sector is in vogue and where the money's flowing? Do you use sort of the mainstream media or technical indicators or macro stuff to identify those general sectors? What I do, I, I, mostly it's, look, it's a combination of a number of things. As I said before, I, I read all the announcements that are coming out. I see if there's any new sectors that people, that the small companies are moving into. Um, but I also use overall uh, technical indicators on all the sectors. Um, remember when we had the pullback at Christmas, I was starting to ease everything out of the market because I, I follow technical indicators on every sector. And when, when all the sectors turned down at the same time, that's when I started to, okay, my companies are good, but the whole market is telling me to step back out of the market. So I do have an overarching thing that, that my sectors, all the sectors, the you know, information technology, the financial sectors, they all have to be in a healthy position for me to be in the market as well. I don't try not to fight the markets. Like it might be a great idea, but I don't want to fight it. If you're in a story like I sign this or ISX that's really got a very good moat, you will still factor in headwinds in, in, in the sector or the broader market and, and that'll affect your sort of pricing going forward and your return model. Definitely, definitely. Look, the, the overall doesn't matter how good the company is. The overall set. Look, I understand people will just hold. This is a great company. I want to hold this, but that's not the way that I deal. Like oh, that's for me. That's where the time management, you know, the opportunity cost comes in. I don't want to hold it. I know it might be a great company, but I don't want to hold it for years, waiting for it to come good. I'll, I'll get out of the company and I'll watch it and wait till it turns, and then I'll get back into the company. And my overall sector analysis, when they all turn together, I start to move out of the market because so the market's not. In a in a in a position that it wants me, it's just that it wants me to be in the market. I don't short the, I don't short the market. Sometimes I short my own portfolios just for the simple fact that I don't want to pay capital gains tax, and I'm carrying some big gains at the moment. So I've, I do have a short position over over most of my portfolio, just to just to lock in gains. But I, I 
only reasons for the capital gains. I don't want to have to pay capital gains on it. So I'm not really shorting anything other than just protecting my capital gains. Yep. So you're hedging, in other words, you're yeah, just trying to lock in crystallize. Yeah, that's right. Just to, to explain when you mentioned there that you looked at the sector uh, performance, is that sort of like an ind- an indice, like an ASX indice for the financial or technology sector? Is that Correct. Yeah, okay. So you look at those, even though they're macro indices. Yeah, yeah that's right. I look at all the indices. And you're, that you use the yeah. macro conditions or the large cap indices to dictate your um, small cap yep. portfolio actions. Yep, that's right. I also look at the US, you know, the NASDAQ because, you know, it's all tech and, and we follow them. Our tech industry follows those guys. So if that starts to turn, we, we will rarely go against what they're doing. So you have to, if you want to, if you're playing in, the, in any sort of speculative space, you want to follow the overall market because when the market's in a joyous position and everybody's making money, then they'll just take off. But when the market turns, all these specs. And that's what I say to people, if... Uh, uh, I don't know if we want to go this in depth, but if the market turns hard and the market goes down and we get a great recession again, the specs are the ones that dry up, that you can't you can't sell, no one will buy. So what I tell people is if things go bad, you want to sell your most illiquid positions first so you get out of them. So that I want to be out. I want to be out early. I, I don't want to be caught the last one at the dance by myself and not have been able to sell. I think that's some really important information. That's going to obviously be more and more important as your position size grows as well to actually have that liquidity to to exit. Alan, do you have any view on, obviously one of the last things we want to try and ask for for the listeners' sake, is anything you think in terms of a a future macro trend or even just a future stock that you think is a potential 10-bagger? Of course, they need to go and do their own homework. Um, But just a couple of things you're looking at going forward. It's a bit up and it's a bit up in the air at the moment with all the, the tariffs and everything. It not, you know, I could say a sector, but then Trump could come out with a tweet tomorrow, and then China would could come out against them. So it's really hard to know what is taking off. Um, you need things to settle down. You, you need positives. Like this, some people are doing really well out of biotech at the moment. I don't really go into biotech space because, again, this, I know from friends that work in the biotech that they the amount of money that goes into it just to try and get it to, to clinical trial and, and the low probability is I guess I view it the same as a resource but I know biotech is getting a lot of a lot of information at the moment if I had to pick a stock and I've written about it the only one would be um, vault securities VLT and the only reason that I like that one is because they've got this software it's called solo software and it's to do with occupational self and uh, health and safety, and we all know that's a big thing. It's getting bigger all the time. And what they do is that actually they've got this thing with a uh, software that goes onto Samsung phones. So what it does is uh, not Samsung phones, Samsung watches. And so what it does, it, if you've got people working off site like you would have in the resource sector, so it would be a big thing for Australia, or anybody that just travels around, uh, they have to like. Uh, log in every occasionally, just ask you, is everything okay? And it monitors where they're at and says, you're not at the right spot, is everything okay? And if you actually fall over or whatever, it, it realises you've fallen over and it just checks if you're okay, make sure you're okay, and it checks on you. So for me, that's something that I think employees will move more and more towards. And actually, and I hate to say this, because everybody talks about China, and they'll say, oh, the big issue is big things China. For me, that's probably get ripped off by China before it actually gets there. But China is actually looking at occupational health and safety and they're looking at software and different issues. So 
that will bring it if if it, if they don't get any any part of the market will sort of make occupational health safety software a bit more well known and so they might get picked up in other asian companies so i just think that's a little thing that they're the only uh, occupational health and soft safety software company on the asx which surprised me when i found out about that i thought it'd be a little bit bigger than that but yeah i think that's it and it had some issues so it's actually quite cheap on cash flow and, and reoccurring revenue um, it's it had some issues. They actually overpromised before, and because I've done my research, I didn't know about this. I just did research on it and found out that they'd overpromised, so the market didn't trust them when they when they're making their uh, forward estimates. Anyway, they've actually came in on their six million reoccurring revenue, so the market is starting to say, okay, maybe we can trust you again. And they said they'll have ten million reoccurring revenue next year. So if they can actually hit that then I think the market will start to say, all right, we really trust you again. Mm. And just for the listeners, say that's closed, the last close of 28 and a half cents. And just, I guess, to put that company into your model, so you'll follow that, will you, and watch their cash flows and announcements and model out what you expect yep. to make sure that they're on track right. to meet that, that guidance that they've given, will you? And Yeah, that's right. And I'll try to, well, I, I will put them in, oh, they're already in my, spreadsheet that I'll estimate where they're going to hit cash flow positive so I can hit it before they before they announce it. So I can put in my first little bid, get my first position, take up a position in that, and then if they hit cash flow positive, that's when all the other investors will come running in and I'll you know, I'll add to my position at market open, I'll add to the position. Well so so you're and, not averse uh, to like literally just buying at open on the announcements when it supports your view as well then? Correct. I'm the, uh, for me, it's about conviction. I have to believe in my ideas, but if something I don't believe in, that, that I have to hold it. If it goes wrong, I just let it go. But I have to make you have to make conviction buys, particularly in the small cap. You have to. You have to. It's all on face. You have to believe what they're telling you, and you have to believe in your in your own ability. You have to. Am I seeing the market correctly? And if it's if I'm not seeing the market correctly, the price will go backwards, and I'll get stopped out, and I'm, I'm out. So we talked about some of the mistakes that you've made and learned from, and obviously you've been able to ultimately overcome some of the emotional and other challenges relating to your trading. Do you have any suggestions or tips for people who sort of know what they're doing wrong but just don't seem to be able to break out of those bad habits? Well, I think I think the first thing you need to do, and this is what really helped me, is I wrote down my rules of buying, all the rules that I had to look at, all the different things that I wanted to know about the company. So rather than me having a, um, you know, just on the spur of the moment buy, uh, if I see a great announcement came when I was first started, if I saw an announcement come through, I thought, oh, I've got to jump on this company, I've got to jump on it. And I had done no research on the company before I jumped on it. And then I realized that it was actually like a pump announcement and then I would jump on it and then everybody was selling into me and then the price would go down. So I think a lot of new investors do that. They don't realize they see a good announcement, they jump on it and they don't realize what's happened in the history of the company. So you need to do your research. So what I do, and I still have it now. I have a list of like 10 things that I, I need to cross this off. I said, have you looked at this? Have you looked at the four C's? Have you looked at who owns the company? Have you looked, you know, I just have like 10 lists of 10 things. And then I'll go through and if I can, I have to check everyone before I make a decision about the company. So it just stops you from having that emotional attachment or emotional excitement, you know, the gambler part. Um, I deal with a lot of people like on social media and forums and stuff like that. What I should say to them is, get off that straight away because people are addicted. People see other people making money. I can guarantee you that they're not making money. Most people 
uh, embellishing what's actually happening because you see them disappear. They they talk about it and they've obviously lost their money and they've disappeared and they've gone off somewhere else. So the, pe- the people get uh, jealous of other people. You need to completely cut that out. It's not a... And a lot, a lot of new investors think it's me versus some other investor. It, it's not a competition. It's only the only competition is within yourself that you have to make the right decisions. Everybody can make money. Everyone can get in and make money on a particular stock. Obviously, you've got to sell to someone else, but you're not. You don't have to prove anything to anyone else. So, I would first thing I would say for all new investors is just get away from any social media, set up your rules, and that's that was the best thing that I ever did, and record everything that you do. That's, as I said before, when I started recording everything and then I could look back at the end of the month and go, oh, why did you do that? Why do you keep making the same mistakes? And there's certain mistakes that I made every time. I would I would not go through my rules. I would not look at certain things. Okay, I'll do that later. And I always put it off and until I started actually obeying my rules. And when I did, it was just such a big difference. And then I said, then look at all your trades. Like I... What I do is I'm constantly reviewing every every quarter. I look back and say, well, what if I'd sold this? What if I'd changed my rules and I'd sold this? Would I have done better? That doesn't mean that I'm going to immediately go out and change it, but you're always looking, trying to look at it from different angles. And I think a lot of it is a lot of work. You have to view it as a business. And I think even if you're gambling or you're speculating, you want to put yourself in a great, you want to put yourself at advantage to everybody else. 95% of the market does not bother with rules. 95% don't care to do their history on the market. So if you do that, you're so far ahead of all the others and you will improve your investing 10 times. So I, I went from losing money to doubling my money in like five years just by a set of rules. And I was still picking the same sort of companies just because I had a set of rules and I managed my risk better. I wasn't going over the top by putting too much money into one company. Look at Jesse Livermore, who was probably one of the greatest speculators there ever is, but he went bankrupt like three times and died a pauper because he used to go all in on stocks. He could pick stocks as good as anybody, but he would go all in on a stock because it just felt right. And then sometimes it wasn't right and he would just lose a lot. So if, if the very best minds struggle with it, you know you're going to struggle with it. So you have to have rules around what you're going to do. That's some, some really good thoughts, I think, for the order. Yeah, just consider, I suppose, themselves. And with the risk management that you talked about, do you have a fixed sort of percentage size on when things are going your way and your uh, stock's, you know, up two or three bags and continuing? If the story's good and the news keeps supporting your thesis, will you sell just purely on value or on um, the portfolio size grounds or do you hold those on indefinitely? Um, look, I have a, probably a limit of 20% that I get to uh, and then that's when I start to can't sleep at night. I ask you, that's what I always ask myself if I can sleep at night when I get to 20% because I think if I wake up, I'm always asking myself if I wake up tomorrow morning and that and they come out the VA, Voluntary Administration, because they're lying about everything, how would I feel? How would my family feel if I'd lost 20% of our portfolio? And I'd tell you I wouldn't feel good. So that's 20% is my limit that I'll let any, any stock go to. But at the same time in saying that, I believe a lot of what Drucker Miller says, if you're in the zone, and you're hitting well, you've got to go. You've got to really push the limit. So when you're doing well, like lately, I was. I think of the 17 stocks I put into my portfolio, 16 actually rose. So I was, you know, I was in the hitting zone. I was, you know, like um, Buffett talks about the fat pitch. I was hitting everything out of the park. So I was doubling and 
tripling normal size bets because I knew I was doing so well. And the market was just the low interest rates. Uh, this is the best time I've ever had in the market because of the low interest rates. Never seen such a great time to be invested, although it's now at the moment because of the way that the tariffs and that has sort of come off. But um, the last 2019 up to date has been the best time in the markets ever. It's just been the perfect time with low interest rates. Everything, everybody's been moving into shares. And there was also had that scare with the real estate before the election. So people didn't want to buy real estate, they were just buying shares and everything was going up. So at times like that, you have to break some rules and you have to go a little bit over the top on certain stocks, but not to the point where if it all if one collapses, that ruins your life. You could you never go to that point. And you mentioned there like the impact it'll have on your family and just to go back to some of the stuff we mentioned earlier, you mentioned you've got a very supportive wife. Are you able to talk about just that sort of history of how you transitioned into you know, speculating and trading full time and what I guess the family implicational support that you have had to facilitate that? Well, look, yeah, look, it's definitely, as I said, I don't like getting onto hot coffee because you see these people as they've had their relationships break down. And you, whenever you enter a position, you want to ask yourself, one, if you can sleep at night, and two, how would this affect your family if, if everything goes to zero? Because it will. There's no investor that's, you know, we all like to think, yeah, we're smarter than everybody else and this won't happen to me, but it does. So you have to be prepared that if one 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 of your one of your positions that you're holding now is more likely to go to zero, and so you have to be prepared for that. And as my what happened with in my personal circumstance, I did a lot of trading beforehand and we were going quite well. And we also had a couple of little kids that were going to school, so it was sort of like a decision about who would stop home and look after the kids. And um, my wife said, "Well, look, you enjoy doing what you're doing. If you don't lose any money." then we're happy. I'm happy for you to stay home and look after the kids. But she sort of said, I expected you better than that. But, you know, it was a, was a family thing at the same time. Uh, so I could walk the kids to school. And I'll tell you, that's a great, if if you can do that, walk your kids to school, because I've had so many great ideas just getting away from the computer screen, just having a downtime, going for walks, you talk to your kids. And when you're walking back, you're doing on, you think, oh, I didn't do that right. Or if I could do something, you know, you learn something like that. So you need to have time away from the screens. You can get a bit obsessed. I think I get obsessed from time to time and I need to take a break from it. Um, we go on holidays and I'm just there reading reading announcements and my wife says, you really need to be doing that. And I probably say, no, you need to have a break. You need to be down, give yourself some downtime. But um, yeah, it's, for me, it's a constant. I'm, even now that I've been in a situation where I've got a decent capital and I, I probably wouldn't have didn't need to invest so much as I do. I do it for enjoyment, but I still ask myself every time, what, what will this position do to my family if we lose everything? Is it is it worth the risk? Is it worth me the worry? Life is short. You don't want to worry too. You don't want to spend your whole time worrying about a position. I have some, you know, you hear a lot of investors ask me, should I sell, should I sell this, should I sell? You know, I say, well, look, it, if it's causing you that much worry, you probably shouldn't be holding it. And they say, yeah, but I'll lose money. I can't afford, you know, I'll just wait till it comes back to even. Well, another thing you could do is, look, sell half. The, the good thing about it is reducing your position. It takes a little bit of stress off. With one, it takes the stress off you and you can think a little bit more clearly about whether you should be holding that position or not. And I know a lot of people, have, after they've heard that advice, they do sell it and they go, come back and say, oh, that was good. Because after I sold it, I had too much. Once I'd sold half, then I re- and I and I put that into something else which is doing well, now I feel better I can get out of the rest of it. And you, you need to put yourself, if you want to 
make the best investing decisions, you have to make the stress on those decisions as least as possible. So stay away from media, uh, social media, and, and, and any position that's really worrying you, you have to ask yourself, should you be holding it? Because one, you won't be thinking clearly on a buying or selling. So you're better to be out of it, and you can always buy it back. That's why I try to convince people, okay, you sell it now, get out of it, think about it. It's rarely going to go up overnight. It's not going to double overnight. You can get out, give yourself a few weeks, think about it. If you really want to hold that stock, get back in. But if you get out and then realise you were in there for the wrong reasons, that's, that's all the better for it. It really does sound like so much of it rolls around just that mental capacity to you know just stick to the, the things in front of you and not let your previous judgment, like your previous emotions, cloud your judgment, which is a, a big challenge for everybody, myself included. Well, that's exactly right. If you can do it, you are so far ahead of every other player on the market. Because every, I rarely meet anybody that's got control of their emotions. Look, I, I tell people that I've got a punching bag in my office. If I do something wrong, I walk in, I just punch that bag as hard as I say, why did you make that stupid mistake? You know you shouldn't have made that mistake. And I belt it. My dogs run. They run out. They know when I'm upset. They run out of the office because they sit next to me while I'm trading or, or reading. And... Um, because I know the rules, I know what I should be doing, I know what's going to make me money, but I still make those mistakes. And people will make mistakes. Don't be too hard on yourself, but you've got to have the rules and you've got to just make it easy. Make it as easy as you can. Don't put yourself in any more stressful situations than, than possible because you won't make the right decisions. If your wife's saying, do we need to pay the rent or do we need to pay the mortgage? You know, you ask yourself, well, should I be, should I be really investing that money? Is that, is that the right move at, at that time? Maybe later on when you have the money to invest, then it's better to do it. Don't do it when you're stressed because you'll make the wrong decisions. You make the oh, quick money decision. And so you mentioned sort of the, the walking to the kids to school as a bit of a, a de- like a break from the market, I suppose. And also we talked before about not rushing into something after you've made a bit of a, a win. But do you do anything else or have any particular techniques for sort of outside the market just to maintain your mental composure, so to speak, or any other sort of non-finance specific things that you think play an important part in how you approach things? Um, look, some, probably the wrong person asking that is because the market is my hobby. You know, I love doing it and I love reading the announcements. So like for me, it's not a, they say you have to treat it like a business. For me, I just love to do it. So I get my enjoyment from that. But as I said, I've had my best ideas when I'm not doing it, when I'm, when I'm away from it, when I'm, walking the kids to school or we, you know, we lived near the water, I take my son fishing and stuff like that. Then that's when it dawns on me, you think, oh man, you know, I really should have done this or I should have done that. So you need to have your break from it. But I'm, I'm, I love what I'm doing. So I get excited about it and I get really passionate and sad to see people when they, when they do lose money, when they don't need to lose money. Not we all lose money, but there's a, if you avoid the common mistakes that everybody makes, you're just so far ahead. And, um, Makes your life easier as well. Alan, look, this has been terrific. We could uh, talk about this for ages. Um, I guess probably the best thing we could do is just um, put up your details where there's a way that people can get in touch with you. Yeah, yeah, put them up. Put the, my website up and um, my email and everything. If anybody wants to ask me any questions, I'm happy. As I said, it's not advice. This is just what helps me to cope. So if they want to hear from someone that's actually in the market doing it every day, and it's obsessed with what they do, then I'm happy to tell you what I do. And I said, you know, if you want to invest, you should have uh, to speak to a qualified investor and, and that. But I can tell you, just talk about emotions. And I'm, I can, I'm happy to tell you all the mistakes. Uh, what 
what I don't like is when you read fund managers say, oh, my biggest mistake was that we, we sold the company 10% too early. We made 190 when we could have made 200%. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear what your mistakes are because people learn from mistakes. So if people want to hear my mistakes, I'll tell you everything that I've done wrong. That was part of the reason I started the forum. So I can tell everybody what I've done wrong so they don't have to make the mistakes. What I learned is that you don't actually learn until you make those mistakes. Mm. And that's your website is cthgpro.com and that's also your Twitter handle, isn't it? If you, if you search cthgpro, yeah, it'll come up. You can even just search that on, on the internet and I'll come up. And as I say, if they want to send me an email, that's fine. That's great. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time once again, Alan. It's been a really, really interesting, thoughtful discussion, and I'm sure all listeners will get a lot from it. Okay. Thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.